Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So you have to have been exposed to things to want things. Hmm. So that's like me saying, hey, I, I want a condo. I, I want a seaside hotel in, in Hawaii. I've never been. I don't know what that looks like. I would never fathom and say, Dre, what's something you want? I never say a beachfront condo in Hawaii because I've never been. I don't know what that looks like. What do you want? Well, I want my grandparents, my parents, and my and my sisters and brothers all to get together for Thanksgiving. I know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So when you start saying, hey, I should be an entrepreneur. I want to build a business and have seven figures and 20 staff. I don't know what that looks like. So I know what I know, what my environment says. My environment doesn't predict or show that. So it was never thought to me like, hey, I want a better life. Don't know what this is the life. What's up, guys? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazny. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine is about two things. Number one, people are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world. Doing both of these despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews of world-class speakers and business leaders showcasing their origin story. What made them tick? What got them to where they are now? So it can help you step into your greatness within your own life, business, and career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years in entrepreneurship as a CEO to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation and messages, and I'm stoked to have you guys here. Welcome to The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. Boy, do we have a special guest today. My main man, Andre Norman, is in the house. What's up, Andre? You know how we do. We know how we do, man. It's the East Coast thing. Dude, East Coast, West Coast. Which is the best coast? I don't know, man. East I'm Coast. West- oh, I'm West Coast. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> all right, all right. So Andre and I met briefly. Andre is uh, is out of the East Coast. He's in Atlanta. But we met up at MIT in Boston, and, and he's a – He's a, a a speaker, has an amazing story, and he came. You just came to come hang out. Uh, you weren't even speaking when we met. You were just coming and hanging out with the GOT crew. So all you guys know who listen to the show know that I'm I'm all about the GOT, Gathering of Titans. And Andre's a, a speaker from that, came to hang out. We met. We actually had a cool conversation about uh, real estate. One of his friends was doing a bunch of real estate in South Carolina, and we got to hang out around the fire, just kick back, have a few drinks. But I was like, man, I really like this guy. I want I want to learn more about him. And so when I launched the, the Greatness Machine, which is those of you, those of you guys who know, the Greatness Machine, we're, we're about two things. 
people are living their passions and those are creating greatness in the world. And my man, Andre here, you're doing both those things. So we're going to be talking about that, but um, that's how we met. I always like to kind of start the bios off with that. With that said, I do want to give your formal bio. So guys, Andre, he grew up in the inner cities of Boston, struggled with poverty and illiteracy, and he eventually found himself involved with gangs, violence, and a 100-year prison sentence. Damn. And the, in the first six years, he immersed himself in prison culture, gaining status and recognition within the system. And this led to him being placed in solitary confinement for two years. And during this time, he decided to turn his life around. And he managed to release, be released from prison after serving 14 years. Andre is now an author, speaker, and mentor. And he currently runs the Academy of Hope, a violence reduction prison-based prison program. So, man, I'm so lucky to have you here, brother. Thank you for coming. Oh, man, listen, you know, you know with GLT, you call, we show up. And exactly. And, and it's such a great network and it, it pumps out so many cool like relationships and the, the, the speaker network is second to none. I don't know if you know this. So I'm actually the chairman this year for it. So I'm I'm organizing it this year. But oh, um, man, so I might be being invited back to speak. Oh, hey, listen, I might I, I might have to uh, we have to go there. <laughs> I got some news. It's been a while. I spoke. Woo! It's been a while since I spoke there. Well, let, let's let's chop that up, man. So, dude, one hundred year sentence. It was a total of one hundred. I had a seven to ten, two nine to tens, two tens, two fifteen to twenties, then a five. And while I was inside, I picked up two more fives for attempted murder. Wow! So it came out to like one hundred and seven. Oh, so I want to back up, man. So you grew up in the inner cities. You know, obviously, that's that's a pretty, like, gnarly system to grow up in. Do you mind kind of giving us your backstory? I mean, um, born in Boston, Massachusetts. My mom married a high school sweetheart. He went to prison for Robin Banks. She meets my dad, a local drug dealer. She has um, six kids total between the two. Wow. I'm number five. And life is good, except for my dad had a habit of beating my mom because that's how he communicated. Once we get past that, I get old enough to go to school. Now I'm getting rocks thrown at me and I'm going to call a nigga because I'm a black kid trying to go to school during the busing crisis in Boston. And once we get past that, <laughs> that's not enough. My dad and mom finally split up. She had enough and he leaves. And so I went from like I came home one day and he was just gone. And nobody ever explained to me why. I found out later. But so as a young kid, I'm nine years old. I got three lessons that I live by. It's OK to hit people. You better protect yourself. And you can quit any time. And that's just how I live my life. And I went through school. I mean, when I went to school, not being able to read wasn't a problem. That thing called a dummy class. Took all the kids, stick you in the room, close the door. And they just left you. So you couldn't read, write, account. Nobody cared. Because wow. what I didn't understand then, but I know now, is in the third grade when I couldn't read, they built a prison cell for me. Because wow. the government says, if you can't pass third grade math and science, you're most likely not going to graduate high school, which means you'll be in the street without a job or a career, which means you're going to commit crime. So we need a cell for you. So unbeknownst to me, in the third grade, the state had decided to build a cell for me. And I just did everything I could to get there. So I dropped out of band. I dropped out of leadership. I started hanging with gangs. And I just got on this track that comes with being illiterate, that comes with being uneducated, that comes with being unmotivated. And I walked that school to prison pipeline. Wow. Go back to prison, though, as expected. So how old were you when you when you got into gang culture? Sixth grade, so like 11. 
And so, I mean, the way I, the way, I mean, and, and I look, I grew up in a very different environment, but intellectually, I understand it that like you're probably looking to belong and for safety. And no, I mean, when I was in sixth grade, I was poor and kids made fun of us for being poor. I was on free lunch. I had old clothes. I didn't have cool stuff. And I just hated being made fun of. They made fun of me every single day because I couldn't afford to pay for my own lunch. And I had to wear old clothes. So when I got the opportunity to go to the park and hustle and sell weed, and through that, I could buy my own stuff, I jumped on it. It was a clean thing for me. I wasn't um, lonely. I probably might have been lonely and depressed, but my main motivator was money. I the kids making fun of me because I didn't have the cool stuff. So you're 12 years old. You're in sixth grade. You're like, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to like... Like you got there's and at, was it were you in a school that was like middle class upper middle class like lower you know, like, any city school poor people I'm saying eighty percent of the kids on free or reduced lunch if the other twenty probably qualified didn't qualify but barely I mean it was just it was just a regular inner city school in America so those it, kids but those kids were still making fun of each other the way kids do and you're just like yeah. fuck this you're like okay I have a better idea how about I go make my own money and like my parents aren't going to buy me this stuff. I'll buy it for myself. Exactly. And so were you, so you start making money Were you, did, did that solve that problem for you? It definitely solved their problem because I could buy the cool clothes. I could pay for my own lunch. I could go, like we saw go to school to the store before school and everybody went to the store before school. You buy your popcorn, you buy your Snicker bar, whatever you buy. I right. couldn't buy anything. I used to have to steal stuff. So now I could go in the store and buy stuff. It was just like, okay, Dre's accepted. He, he can, it's just a bag of popcorn and Snicker bars and, and some sodas, but it made a difference. So you started hustling. Uh, you started making some money. And then, I, I'm, so my question for you is that that starts to escalate, I, I take it? Once you get on the wrong path, you're on the wrong path. I got on the wrong path. Even though I had good intentions or I had good motivation, but I'm on the wrong path. And I was a small guy on the wrong path, but I was nonetheless on the wrong path. So you had, you said you were one of six. What were your siblings doing? My younger brother, he was still in elementary school, so he didn't know we were poor. My older sisters were like, we grew up in a house of six kids, but they was kind of on their own. So me and my brother, older brother went to the same school, but we never really spoke. Wow. It was like, it was, our house was like kind of every man for themselves was like the mentality. So at what at what age, how old are you the first time you got arrested? The first time I got arrested was, I didn't get arrested in eighth grade, the first time the police came and they sat us down. I was in the eighth grade, so I was probably like 13. The first time I got arrested, I was 14. So it's funny. So I was, the first time I had the cops ever, like basically come to our house, I was 13 too. But same shit, because kids, because boys that are bored do stupid shit, right? Yeah. Difference is, is I grew up in middle class, upper middle class, and like, you know, it stops there, right? You have that, you have those safety nets, right? Yeah, no nets, there's no nets in the hood. No, no, exactly. exactly. There's no net in the hood. <laughs> so you're 13. Cops show up. What'd you do? Shoplift or something stupid? No, no, no. I we I got mad at the teacher. A teacher pissed me off in eighth grade, so we literally broke all the windows in the school. Except for one classroom. No way. What'd you break them with? We just went outside, got bricks, and just see. No. Back in the days, 
there were screens on the outside of the window. Right. They throw the brick enough times to dent the screen in so it leaned against the glass. Oh. Then we break it. So the rock never went through the window. We had to throw the brick like three or four times. It would dent the screen. Then the fifth time, it would break the glass. Right. So they already have protective coverings on there. But you're like, oh, I don't give a shit. I'll break that thing so anyway. I broke every window except for one teacher. My favorite teacher, Mr. Bevilacqua. So when they came to school the next day, everybody's windows broke except for his. They're like, well, okay, well, why is that? And they kind of... <laughs> When they finally got to me, they're like, well, why didn't you break his windows? That's not like him. Wait, so did they? how did they know it was you that did it? I forget. It's so long. I mean, they, they figured it out some kind of way, probably because I probably said something. I don't know. But they sat me down. They said, we have one question. You broke every window in this grade. Why didn't you break those? I said, I like Mr. Bevilacqua. <laughs> Mr. Bel- Bevilacqua? Is that yeah. it? So why'd you like Mr. Belvlockway? Because he treated I don't you well? Remember, but he was, I just remember him being nice to me. Oh, that's cool. Reason, he was nice enough that I didn't break his windows. I yeah. could heard somebody who was nice to me. Hey, Mr. Belvlockway, if you're listening, good job. So 14, What? why'd you get arrested when you were 14? I was a freshman in high school, and I beat up the senior class president. Wow. For what reason? Well, I would... People have a hard time believing this. I was like really short. I was like 5'1 when I started high school. And I'm in freshman year and we're in the cafeteria. And this girl came in with like a bunch of kids and she was like, hey, she tried to take my chair. I'm like, I don't know you. And she was like, give me your chair. I'm like, what are you talking about? And my friends were making fun of me because she bullied me for my chair. So as she was leaving the cafeteria, I walked behind her and I stepped on her shoe. And she was like, beat it. And I did it again. And the fourth time I did it, she turned around and punched the shit out of me. Oh. She was, I'm like 5'3". She's like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, yeah, yeah. And what I didn't know was she was a senior class president. Oh! So she's a senior class president. She had some exchange students with her. And she brought me to the cafeteria. In her mind, she's the boss of the school. Right. I'm a freshman who doesn't go to class. Like I don't know who you are. So when she just... But she was a big girl, though. Like I said, softball, basketball, everything. She turned around and just punched me in my face. Oh! Then she punched me and punched me. She just kept punching me. Wow. I, I I went to like state of shock. Like, oh my God. Then one of my friends were like, Dre's getting his ass with. I said, that's me. Oh. I just hit her with an uppercut and a hook. And I, I and she just hit the floor. Oh, no way! <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. It's not funny. funny. You look at me now, you're like, yo, I'm 6'2", 270. I was like, I remember when I got arrested, I was 5'3", about 130 pounds. And so you knocked out the senior class president because you were being a little asshole, and she, she socked you up. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's whooping my ass straight up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only time in my life a girl was beating me. She was winning. Had she just stopped and walked away, she'd have had a W. Oh, yeah. This is, everyone has a game plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, this game plan, you hit back. But I didn't, for the first like six, seven blows, I didn't even hit her back. I was just like shocked. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. He caught me and it, like my brain shut down. That happened. That happened. When I was uh, 13, I got punched in the face. It's funny when you get punched in the face. Like it's your, it's this weird thing, right? I'm not There's, expecting it. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't expecting it when I got punched in the face either. Yeah, it's it's it, it, when people say the Mike Tyson quote, everyone gets has a game plan until they get punched in the face. I always ask him, "Have you ever been punched in the face?" 
And like 95% of people have never been punched in the face. Yeah. I mean, I was just being like the little dummy brother like I do to my sisters at home. Right, right, right. Punch me. I mean, that's why I'm looking at her like my big sister. Yeah. Since, even though she's not my sister's sister, but I've had this encounter with my sisters. I got three older sisters. And when she decided punching me, I just, I would never hit my sister back. Right. But your sister probably wouldn't have socked you up like that either. But at the same time, it was like, that's what's running through my mind. It wasn't until I bumped into the wall and somebody said, Andre's getting beat up. Did yeah. it occur to me that I'm, easy, I'm even in a fight. Well, yeah, yeah, because it happened so fast, right? She just like, like, dude, getting punched in the face a couple of times can happen in like two seconds. Yeah. She was just like, bang, bang, bang. I'm like, you in a boxing club too? <laughs> She's like she's like captain of the boxing team. She's uh, captain of, of the basketball team, the softball team, the swimming team, and yeah. she's a popular girl in school. Yeah, yeah, she didn't fuck around, man. She's like, why is this little guy messing with me? Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now, and let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, 
all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So so you got arrested. You go to juvie? I got. I end up going to juvie. They arrested me, took me to court. They gave me juvenile probation for like three years or four years, whatever it was. Wow. So, yeah, so you're on probation. You're like 14, which is, you know, and, and so what happens next? How, how do you end up actually going to jail? What happens next is up until then, I've never really been arrested. Right. They, they had me on juvenile probation and like a little cleanup crew. So now I'm hanging out with all the real criminals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really on probation for carrying guns and doing a bunch of other stuff. So the more I'm around them, the more I learn. Oh, shit. So, so you're like just doing like little stupid kid shit. And they're like, hey, hey, we know what to do. Let's take this kid and put him around a bunch of really, really fucked up kids. And then you become what your environment is, right? Exactly. That's what happened. Oh, man. So those I kids, were, those kids of, were just ahead of you. That was it. Man, once I got in that track, it just expedited my path down, down that road. And then I just kept getting in more trouble until I finally, the judge said, enough is enough. And they put me on that bus to the penitentiary. How old were you when that happened? 18. Fuck, man. Were you, did you work any legitimate jobs during that time? Not really. Were you, I mean, were you just hustling? jobs, but I mean, not really, no. And so let, let me ask a question. So were your, you said your parents split. How old were you when your parents split? First grade, so probably like eight or nine. Well, you just, so was your mom just raising the kids or were you involved with your dad or what? And my mom took care of it. So your mom's basically like, dude, one, I can't even imagine having six kids and me one person, right? Like that's, that's like crazy. So your mom's just like overwhelmed. She's like, whatever. Like, I can't handle this, right? She did her best, but best is not always, like I said, six kids. We're all like one year apart. So it is yeah. three girls in a row, skipping it, and three boys. There's like Lord of the Flies, man. We you win. Know? Yeah, it's funny. Like, so um, you, you know uh, David Zellman, right? Yeah. Dr. Z. And so he and I were talking about this because my dad was a crazy fucker. And I was talking to him about it. I was doing some coaching with him. He's like, maybe that's the best he could do, man. And he's like, what if – he asked, what if that's the best your dad could do? And I was like, I never thought about that like that, right? Because it's easy to kind of point the finger, right? I mean, it might be the best that she could do or the best that he can do. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still jacked up. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't like – it doesn't wash the, 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 the sins clean. So are you are – you, is your mom still alive? Mom and dad are still alive. Are you, are you, do you have a relationship with them? Yeah, I speak to them. And so, uh, out of all your siblings, did anyone else end up on the same track as you? My youngest brother went to prison. He did 27 years. Damn. And so, wait, three boys, three girls, you said? Three girls, skip a year, three boys. And you and, you and the youngest end up in prison. The other four, no? No. Fine? Okay, so they, they, figured, they figured out how to not end up in prison. So, and was it? Do you think that that it was that you, your brother, saw like the track you were on and just kind of followed you, or he just whatever? Same. We, just, we were left to our own devices. Me, my, me, and the younger brother, like, it was like, okay, my mother raised the first three, and my older brother kind of got into that loop, and it was just me and my brother were like on the tail end. So you're 18, and what what got what was the straw that broke the camel's back? What was the what, what did you do that ended? Uh, home invasion. I used to rob drug dealers. Wait, wait, so you robbed a drug dealer and, and then you got arrested for robbing a drug dealer? 
did, did the drug drug dealer turn you in? How the fuck does that work? They call the police. I oh, yeah, he's, like, he's trying to steal my weed. They don't say that. <laughs> I used to go to the suburbs and rob white drug dealers. Oh, oh, he's trying to steal my baseball cards. No, 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 no. I used to go to the white. I used to go to the suburbs and rob white drug dealers. So with, like rob. They weren't have guns. They didn't have pit bulls in their house. They weren't going to put up a fuss. It was more a hobby than a real, real like they were really in it. They weren't criminals, hardcore. So when you go break into a house or when people are home, it's home invasion. You go in a house with guns, the white people in the suburbs, they dial a 911. And when the police came, they weren't asking about drugs. There was three black guys in the house in the suburbs with guns. That's all they knew. And were you guys just like, I mean, why go into a house with people there? Why not? I would find, because you know where the drugs are. Oh, you'd make them go get the drugs for you? Yeah. Oh, got it, got it. So I'm, I'm, like, well, I'm like, why not just break in when they're not home? Oh, you're like, fuck that. You pull out the gun, and you're like, go get me your shit. Yeah, I'm a quick study. Um, <laughs> my mom, when I was young, she's like, Darius, please use your brain for good. <laughs> I was that, I call my mom, I'm like, hey, mom, I have this idea. I tell her some, like, basically credit card fraud idea. I was like 11. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, you were, drug dealers know where their stuff is. So that's why I rob drug dealers. So so how many times did you did you get away with it before you got caught? 10, 15. I don't know. I just did it. That was my daily job. Wow. And and you so you take so that's how you got your stash. You could basically rob them, take it, and go sell it. No, I just I didn't I wasn't a drug seller. I was a, I robbed people for drugs, money. I wanted their money. If I had drugs, if I got drugs by proxy, I wholesale them. I'm like, hey, hey, yo, D. Take this, just give me give me some money. I'm gone. Oh, okay. off, whatever. For the drugs, that is damn near giveaway. This I come to you like yo D. Hey, take this, give me some money, and I walk away. Got it. Got it. So you're like, all right, drug dealers ha- are not they're, they're getting paid in cash. You know that. So you're like, all right, these guys. I came in your house and I took your drugs and your jewelry and your money. I'll keep the jewelry. I keep the cash. Then I would go to somebody and just be like, yo, give me X for the drugs one time, and I walk away. Got it. Okay. Healers, and I'd go to them in my neighborhood, be like, "Yo, just give me this. I'm gone." All right. So, so, you, so at this point, your 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 profession is robbing people for their drugs and and not their drugs, but their cash and their jewelry and right. and the that, it, so, so 18, you finally catches up to you. 10 or 15 times you do it, gets caught up, catches up to you. You end up in prison, and now you now you're in the system, dude. Like like there's like yeah, this is, like the sl- the slope just got slippier, more slippery. Yeah, it's gone. Fell off the cliff. So, which prison did you go to? I went to a place called MCI Walpole in Massachusetts. And what type of a prison is that? Is that maximum penitent? Maximum prison. People there doing forever and ever. There were some guys there that had 30, 40 years in when I got off the bus. And you were eight. So, you're 18 years old. When you knew you were going to prison, how'd you feel about it? The thing is, is the truth is, you're kind of prepared for it because by the time you get to that stage in your life, You've committed enough crimes. You've been in the county jail enough. You've been in court enough. You know it's coming. It's inevitable. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know it's coming. So, so Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So were you just like, fuck it. Like, I might get killed. I don't, like, this is before even going to prison. You're just like, this is just the lifestyle I live. And, like, I don't know how long I'm going to be alive for. Did you expect did that? You don't think like that. It's like when you just live. Like, when people go to war, they don't think, hey, I'm going to die in five minutes. Who cares? You go and you just do you do your thing until your time's gone. So you're just like I'm just living for today. Like it doesn't matter. Like I'm living for, for right now. Right now. Right. I'm not talking about later on. I'm talking about right now. 
and, and was there any part of you that was like, I actually want to have a better life? Did what does you- a better life look like? So I don't live where you live. So you have to have being exposed to things to want things. Hmm. So that's like me saying, hey, I, I want a condo. I, I want a seaside hotel in, in Hawaii. I've never been. I don't know what that looks like. I would never fathom and say, Dre, what's something you want? I never say a beachfront condo in Hawaii because I've never been. I don't know what that looks like. What do you want? Well, I want my grandparents, my parents, and my and my sisters and brothers all to get together for Thanksgiving. I don't know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. You know so when you start saying, hey, I should be an entrepreneur. I want to build a business and have seven figures and 20 staff. I don't know what that looks like. So I know what I know, what my environment says. My environment doesn't predict or show that. So it was never thought to me like, hey, I want a better life. Don't know what this is the life. So do you mind if I ask you kind of a, a, like, I'm going to take a little bit of a side route here. Do you mind if I ask you kind of a curveball? Oh. All right. So there's a big debate right now in the United States around like the system, like systemic racism, the system of like outcomes that creates this outcome we're talking about. And I mean, when when you're describing this right now, what I'm hearing is like, dude, you were fucking eight. And this shit started. This is shit didn't start when you were like 18. I was in third grade and I failed math and science. The United States of America built a prison cell because they had a formula that says if a child doesn't pass third grade math and science, they are most likely not going to graduate high school. So you go look, there's a thousand kids who fail third grade math and science. Those kids, 80% of them will not graduate high school. So now you have 800 kids who are in the streets with no education, no job opportunity, and they're probably like way behind. So what are they going to do to live? Well, 10% of them will go take menial jobs. The rest of them are going to have to hustle some kind of way, which means they're going to eventually get arrested. and We're going to need a cell for them. So they knew when I was in the third grade where I was going to end up when I when I got 18. It wasn't a secret. Instead of saying, we're going to wait 10 years to incarcerate this man at $40,000 a year, why don't we just teach him math and science? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need it. Like, I'm, I'm with you 110%. I, I, so my, I guess, I mean... My question for you is, do you believe in systemic racism then? And do you think that this is... Systemic racism, that's wonderful. It's just, I'm not going to call it racism. You just don't care about poor people. Yeah. Contingency in this country who just don't care about if they're poor black, if they're poor white. See, when you say systemic racism, you skip over white people. Yeah, yeah. People who are living in some rural towns that can treat like shit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's not just the black, there's some Native Americans who are on reservations. They're getting treated... 10 times worse than black folks. Yeah, so this so, is cl- classism then. So it's it's classism. It's generally white people in charge, but they're just the poor people who get crossed over. So that's poor white, poor Latino, poor black, and Native Americans. Yeah. All I hear you. And, and, and so it just so happens that there is a disproportionate number of certain races that are that are, fall into the poor category, to your point. Right, right. It Right. So if we look at one out of three African-American men get incarcerated, but only 13 percent of the population is African-American, that doesn't make sense. Right. But, so no, no, it's no further than that. Twelve percent of the country is African-American. We call it black. If 50 percent of those are male, you're talking about six percent. It's not right. six. And right. out of the six, we're going to say two percent of them 
are either under 12 or over 50. So you're talking about 4% of the a nation makes up over 40% of the prison system. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It's 4% makes up 40 to 50% of the prison system. Yeah. That's dominant. That's crazy, man. So, all right, well. Let's, no, no, let's go back. There is. It's not crazy. It's intentional. Why, why do you so explain that? When you have 4% of the population makes up 50% of your prison system, that's intentional. That's not, oh, that's just the bad numbers. Or it was lucky. You got a lucky bounce or unlucky bounce. When 4% makes up 50% of your prison population, that's intentional. So when you say intentional, what comes to mind for me is that we are intentionally putting African-American men in jail. Yes. Intentionally meaning that, like, it's our, it is our intention. We, like, yes, we I, I clear English. Like, we, you know, I'm saying we don't care. I, I know, no, I know that, but, but I'm, I'm saying it to myself. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I'm thinking through. This is part of me being so unscripted. I just think through my things out loud. So, okay, good, bad, or indifferent. We want our intention as a society is to incarcerate African American men. Yes. And the reason we do that is why? That's different. We're going to go to the why. Let's go to the numbers. The numbers say it happens. The numbers say right now, 45% of prisoners are black. If you do black and brown, you're talking about 65%. So 65% of your prison system is black and brown. I don't, why is irrelevant? Why is where people get stuck? I'm doing the numbers. The math speak for themselves. 65% of your prison system is black or brown. And it's been that way for the last 50, 60, 70 years. So at some point you say, okay, it's intentional. It's not accidental. So I take a step back because I've had this argument, debate with, with people. I'm a moderate. So I, you know, you're a moderate, by the way, so politically, if your um, friends who are Republican call you socialist, and if your friends who are liberals call you Republican. So yeah. I, I'm moderate, right? That works. So, I'll t so because I'm moderate, I get I get to have a lot of interesting conversations because people don't know what I am, and they'll tell and they like my therapist said he thought I was like a hardcore Trump supporter the other day. I'm like, no, I actually I'm not right. I got no beef with Trump. No, um, I don't like his leadership, but but like that's my perspective. I mean, you we go we can let's do the history of see leadership for who? Oh yeah, I, more stylistically. The leadership Bill Clinton did for black folks was like, hey, whatever, three strikes and you're out. I didn't like his leadership either. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, policy aside, right? I, this is more just stylistically, right? Like, like I'm, but, but I, but I, but I, I hear you, right? Like, because if you start going again, if we're gonna say let's put everything aside, just go by the numbers, like, ah, oh, man, the, the numbers aren't good for 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 if you're voting Democrat, you know, the like right now, America has 25 percent of the world's population in prison. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Darius here, and by now you might know that I'm passionate about a few things. Pizza, pink unicorns, core values, and down-dirty, interesting conversation with some amazing people. However, the biggest one that I've spent most of my career on is entrepreneurship and scale. You see, look, my first few years in business, I spent like probably a good five years of my life getting my freaking teeth kicked. I mean, really getting crushed. And I learned a lot during that time period. So I spent the greater part of the last couple of years helping entrepreneurs scale their businesses in a meaningful way without going through the same growing pains that I did. 
And what I realized is that CEOs and business leaders don't know if they can scale and thus they do the right thing at the wrong times. This causes them to lose clarity, lose momentum, alignment, and the bottom line is you lose money. And look, you don't have to do that. It's why I created what I call the scalability assessment, and you can access it 100% for free. That's right, guys. There are perks to listening to The Greatness Machine. All you have to do is go to DariusScale.com. That's D-A-R-I-U-S scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And there, you can check to see if your business is set up to scale properly. It's going to give you a scalability score at the end, and it's also going to give you some clarity on what you can do next. Once again, guys, that's www.itsdariusscale.com. Once again, guys, it's dariusscale.com. And now back to the show. So let's go back to your prison experience. So you're 18 years old. 18. And you're, you're in, the slope has went away. You're in the system. And you're in prison for 14 years. Is it that once you're in there, then you're just committing crimes in prison to survive? And I was convicted twice of attempted murder in prison. And that's just what? You're defending yourself? No. I was selling drugs and robbing drug dealers. In prison? Yeah. What, what, t- tell me about that. Okay. Whatever you were this morning, you're going to be this afternoon. So if I put you on a, on a bus and I flew you to Argentina, you're still going to be you. If I flew you to China, you're still going to be you. Whatever you like. If you like ice cream now, when I fly to Argentina, you're still going to like ice cream. If blue is your favorite color... You get off the bus in Russia, you blue still your favorite color. I robbed people. I beat up people. Because you put me in prison, what did that do? Change me? Yeah, but it's probably more competitive, I would assume. More competitive, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're around a lot more guys with your skill set, right? You know, competitive or not, it still is what you do. So you're in there. You're like, look, I know what I know. I know how to rob people. I know how to steal shit from people. And I know how to beat the shit out of people when I need to, to exactly. do what I want. Prison is the best place to be if that's what your skill set is. Uh, those are probably highly sought after skill set there, yeah. So let's just take a prison, because people don't, I do math. Let's take a prison with 2,000 people and make 50% of them drug addicts, which is a really small number. That's 1,000 people. A bag of heroin costs $50. So if I can sell a bag of heroin to every drug addict, that's fifty drug, that's 1,000 drug addicts times 50. That's $50,000 times seven days is three fifty. Times four weeks is $1.4 million in heroin sales. That's they going to get one bag a day. That's just, they literally had a drug bust a couple months ago, $20 million drug ring. In, in, in prison? $20 wow. million drug ring. Wow. So, so you're making money in prison, essentially oh, yeah. selling drugs and stealing drugs from people. Yeah. And so. You think people are inside fighting for colors? For gangs? No, they're fighting over common over, over contraband. Who okay. controls the contraband? That's it. So you're in there doing like like this sounds like a crazy environment, you know. And and I, I mean I guess it's just a version of what your outside environment was, but now it's but now you have a much more concentrated group of drug addicts, criminals, like it's just a different more of a What's that? It's the best of the best. You might be the best guy at your high school in basketball. Then you get on campus at U Michigan and you're trash. You might be the best guy at U Michigan. You get to the NBA and you're trash. You get to your team. You might be the best guy on your team. You get to the all-star team and Michael Jordan's looking like, who are you? You're trash. Right. You get to the Hall of Fame, you're trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, all above you. 
So at what point when were you there that you got into uh, solitary? I was in jail for six years. I got two attempted murders. They put me in solitary. And while I was in there, I was a third-ranking gang member in the state. And I had a chance to become number one. And at that point, I realized that I was the king of nowhere. Wait, wait, wait. They actually had rankings? Yeah. Like, you were number three in the state of Massachusetts for number three, like, highest-ranking gang member? As in, like, you're, like, the boss. Like, there's only two guys above you? Exactly. Oh, got it, got it. So it was, all, it was, it was basically, like, your... What did you have a title or like a captain or something like that? No, we don't do titles, but they know who you are. Sorry, I was watching Sopranos. It's kind of looking boxing, the pound for pound best. Yeah. So when Tyson was fighting, he was pound for pound best. Then there's somebody under him and somebody under him and so forth and so on. Were you gunning for number one? Or were you oh, who, okay. who was number one? It was a guy named Dominic Williams. And you're like, I'm taking how do you become number one? Prison status is based on the work you put in, how many people you beat up, how many people you stabbed. Stuff like that. No way, man. So, so What's the difference between Carl Malone and Michael Jordan? One has rings, one don't. <laughs> Carl Malone was a beast, but he ain't got no rings. So Barkley was phenomenal. He ain't got no rings. <laughs> all right. <laughs> if he ain't got no ring, they're going to climb you. Patrick Ewing, all-time great. He ain't got no ring. Man, I love this comparison. These are crazy. So you're you're 24 years old, two attempted murders, number three in the state, gunner for number one, boom, you're in solitary. I'm in solitary for uh, for the two attempted murders, and then I realize I'm the king of nowhere. And I said, hey, this was like, yo, is this is this really what I want? I'm the king of nowhere. And, and in my mind, it made sense. In my have you ever watched Mike Tyson interview in 2020, 2021? He'll tell you that's a whole different person. I believed the hype, and I believed the hype too. I believed the hype of being this mythical character. So instead of being a person, I was a mythical character, and I played this role that I was designed to play, and it took me nowhere. And no different than Mike Tyson crashing in the boxing world, I crashed out in, in prison. I said, yo, I'm the king of nothing. This means nothing. Because know what? know why it meant nothing? I wasn't a person. I wasn't whole. I didn't love Andre. I didn't have any purpose or principles. I just lived by this code that was made up by somebody else I never even met. Did you? So did you find that from within? That just came from within? I got it on my own. Yeah. I came to a point of realizing that if I do this last thing, it's going to make me number one. I got the chance. I had a chance to hurt some people. It would have made me number one. And in that space, I saw what number one really was. It was nothing. It was all make-believe. When you're chasing it, it seems like something great. And once you get it, you realize, uh, this is it. <laughs> wow. So they call that, that, there's a book about that called The Second Mountain. So you got to the top and you're like, this view sucks. Yeah. This yeah. View. yeah so it's, I, it, it's funny, man. Like, like people, a lot of people do that. A lot, I did that, man. I, I built a big company. And I got to the top and I'm like, this isn't what I want. But you know, same only, you were focused. Like like as light like laser focused. Exactly. So like, you get, it's the same thing in prison. I was laser focused. You ignored some family members. You avoid ignored some vacation. You skipped over some other stuff. Now I gotta get this top of this mountain. Then yeah. when you got here, like the view sucks. Yeah, I was I top of my mountain. Said this view ain't it. I don't want to live here for the rest of my life. 
So, 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 but now you're, you know, you get out. So two years in solitary. I mean, what is that like? 24 hours a day, seven days a week in a cell by yourself. And once I realized that I was on the wrong, I was laser, laser focused on the wrong thing. Once I realized that I didn't want to be that, I had to come up with something else. That was a hard part. Well, if I'm not going to be the number one guy in prison, what am I going to be? Then I said, well, I started looking around. I said, well, I want to be successful. I don't want to be here. So I said, how do I become successful? I said, I go to college. I picked Harvard University. I said, I go to Harvard, be successful, end the story. I got laser focused on that. Wait, wait, wait. So you're in solitary when you make this decision? Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to Harvard. But l- let's just back up for a second. Like, are you? can you read and write and all that stuff at this point? Are you, are you like, you can't even read or write at this point. Not well. But so, what, see, it's the thing. I had a conversation this morning with a guy. Owns a really super successful law firm. He says, Dre, how does this work? I said, first you set a goal. Don't look at your limitations. First you set the goal. Yeah. I set the goal, Harvard University. Then I went back. I said, now what's inside of me that's stopping me from achieving that? Then I fixed those things. I became educated. I became fluent in the law. I became articulate. I became self-regulating. I became, you saying, a whole person. I became a focused person. Those are things that I was missing. But first, I set the goal. Then I correct myself. Because so, if I say I'm going to Harvard, I need certain things. Right. So let me back up. So you're like, how long were you in solitary when you, for your two years total, but at what point did you make this decision? Probably like, I had probably like 18 months in solitary. I had six months left. And I came wow. up with that decision. So for the first 18 months, what were you just like? Like I was, I was still selling drugs. I was still extorting people. I was still running my running my business in solitary. Yeah, but how would you do that if you can't talk to people? You who said we couldn't talk to people? Oh, I don't know. I I I'm not in solitary. Back, back in the nineties, you used to be able to you get phone calls. So I would call like these have these one nine hundred party line numbers. I don't know right. party lines. And I I, did, I I remember party lines. Wait, you call the party line. I would call. You would call. All the gang would call the party line. Saturday night at six o'clock, then you can press like five five and you get a private room. Oh, it's like Clubhouse. <laughs> it is now. You get private rooms on Clubhouse. Yeah, you can do private rooms on Clubhouse. Oh yeah. Well, back in the nineties, they had the party lines. You call the party line and everybody would press. I don't know if it's five five four four. They give you a private room and it'd be the whole gang in a private room. We handle our business. So, how did you do that from solitary though? I get the phone. I get access to the phone. Oh, you get access to the phone. So so you have phone, but you can't physically be around people. They would bring the phone like once a day. So we knew on certain days, like on the weekends, when most of the guards and the investigators were off, we'd do our party line calls. Wow. Okay. So, so you're running. <laughs> I can't believe you're running a drug ring from a party line in maximum security prison. This is a fucking crazy story. So- 18 months. So, but so if you're doing all that, at what what snapped? Did you just sort of like this is a this is a one way trip to nowhere? Well, I was about. It's like I call it a Wizard of Oz moment. When I was about to do my thing, you you go back and watch the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy and the crew land in Oz. They're running down a Yellow Book Road, trying to find the wizard to get the magic key to get out of it. When they finally get to the kingdom, they get to his throne. Toto pulls the curtain back, and it's this little guy pulling levers. So that's how I felt when I got to my, to my end of the road to the castle. It's my turn to be boss. I pulled a curtain back, and it's like a little guy pulling. I'm like, what is this? But this is the thing about the Wizard of Oz. 
everybody in Oz was okay with it. Right. There's not one person in Oz who had a problem with living in a, the whole thing was fake. So you, you have the moment, you're like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to set a new goal. My new goals, I'm going to go, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to go to Harvard, right? Right. And so you get out of solitary six months later. What happens? Everyone's expecting the old version of you. Or, or, or how I, well, I, The last six months, I, was, I started going to GD classes. So I started going to school in solitary. And I got out, I kept going to school. And people were waiting for the old Andre. He just never showed up. And did, did people try to like fight you or get you to come back or any of that stuff? Or I kept, I kept going to programs. Then what? The best way I can imagine is, explain this. Imagine me being Mike Tyson. And I say, I don't want to fight no more. And I don't want to sell drugs no more. But I can fight like hell. And I'll chop your head off. So who in their right mind is going to go poke Mike Tyson and say, hey, do you really want to go to school? The I, best way to face smash them. Yeah, so, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, is that the, I mean, probably not most people, but there might be some people. No. Nah. One time I was at a prison. I'm going to programs every single day. What, what do you mean by programs? Anger management, GED, self-help groups, AA, AA. I'm going to programs every single day. Are you doing that because you're like, if I do this, I know this is how I get out. Are you doing this because it's going to actually help you or a combination of both? What do you think? Okay, there's two things. You can do programs to get out, which is a minimum effort you have to put out. You can do programs to stay out, which is what I did. I took programs to learn how to stay out. I didn't need, to, I didn't need them to get out. I need to learn how to stay out. And so guy asked me one time, why do you keep going to these programs? Greg? He said, you're the smartest guy in this prison. He said, you don't need a program. I said, dude, I need to go. My father, bad relationship, got me twisted. I'm always angry. And he kept challenging me about it. I said, listen, I'm going to programs tomorrow. And there's two options. Option one is I can go down in the unit. I can get my knife, come back here and stab you in the face. Or option two is I can just go to programs tomorrow and talk about why my dad and me had a bad relationship. So I can talk about stabbing you in the face. I can talk about me and my dad's relationship. You pick it. But either way, I'm gone. <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, man, that's messed up. You and your dad don't get along. You need to go fix that. <laughs> so you get out two years out of so two years in solitary, six years prior, so eight years in, and you're there for another six years before you get out. Yeah. That, what what happens during those six years? I go to every class, I go to every program, I start designing programs, I start joining groups. They call it scared straight, but we didn't scream at kids. We went to the youth programs. I started participating in positive stuff. I started my change gave other people the permission to change. Because my status made it okay for them to do it. Uh, internally, in, in prison. In prison. In prison. I wrote a book. It was mainly written in prison. Wow. So you wrote your book while you were in prison. Most of it. The, Most the, of I, it. Wrote, I wrote the, um, the, the, the manuscript in prison. Yeah. So at what point did you realize you were like, I'm going to get out? How, how much more time did you have left before you thought you'd I get out? The day I said, I'm going to Harvard. And I, Harvard, in my mind, I was getting out because I couldn't oh. have a dream and think I was staying. Right, right, right. So that's so that you're seven and a half years in. You're like, I'm going to Harvard. It takes you six and a half years from that point till they, they parole you. Six years in, it took me another eight years to get parole. Six years, but but six years in was when you had the realization or seven? Six years in when I had the realization. Oh, got it, got it. Okay. I did another eight. 
So eight, and and during the time you're like, I'm fighting for something. Like I'm yeah. gonna get out of here. So walk me through you the day you found out you're gonna get out. How long before from that before how long when when was that? I went to the pro board April of 1999, and they sat in there and they told me I could go home. They said, You can go home, Andre. We're gonna let you go by the end of the month. Go back. And they, they approved me to go home. So I go back to the unit and then I'm supposed to leave the prison I'm in, which is a medium security prison, be transferred to a minimum security prison, do like four weeks and go home. So I go back to the unit. They hold a hearing the next day, classification, and they clap. They see the parole decision. They classify me to the lowest security so I can be released. My So I'm like, I'm going home. I'm like, I go to the pro. They say, yeah. I submit it. They said, yeah, I'm out of here. Then two days later, my uh, my move to minimum security was denied. By who? I went out to see the director of classification. <laughs> I said, dude, I got my parole. I got my classification of low security. Why did you deny my move? He said, you're too dangerous to let out. You tricked them. I'll never let you go to minimum security. No. This was the, this was the director in the prison you're in? Director of classification for that prison. How did he not know? Time. Say that again. The director of classification at that prison who had known me my entire 13 and a half years. Yo, he, he must, said, have, he must he, have seen you change. He must have seen that you changed as a person. Yeah, well, he, he saw me, but he didn't believe me change. You know what, man? It'd be one thing if you had changed like six months before. And this is like a this is like six years of you behaving hey. Eight years of you do, like on the straight and narrow, right? But I'm still in prison. This what I had a CEO pull me up one time. So I asked him, why do they keep harassing me when I'm doing so good? I'm minding my business. I'm going to school. I'm doing this. He said to me, Drake, he said, you see that guy over there? I said, yeah. He said, he's a gang member. And they are scared of him because he's out of control. You see that guy over there? Gang member. It scared him because he's out of control. And he pointed about 10 people out around the yard. He says, now, who do they listen to? I said, he said, they all listen to you. He said, so who do you think the administration is more scared of? The 10 individuals who could act up or the one person that can send them all into a raging with a snap of a finger? Wow. He said, they'll never, they'll never let you outlive who you are. Wow. He says, as long as you control them, they got a problem with you. That's fucked up. That couldn't denounce my control. Well, and, and here's the deal, man. Like, is prison really about rehabilitation? No. Absolutely not. No, never been. No. They, they the prison's designed to lock up like poor people who happen to be black. Yeah. And so the people out there, there, the goal is not to rehabilitate you, it's to reform your mind to mush so you come back. But yeah, so this is the whole penal system uh, for people to get paid. You know, this is about this is the capitalism of penal. Fifty billion dollars a year to run that system, just to prison it. If you had to coordinate policing, you're up to almost five hundred billion dollars to run the criminal justice system. Five hundred billion dollars, opposed to teaching a third grader how to do math and science. Yeah, you, when you start throwing numbers like that out, it's like okay, we spend five hundred billion for that. We spend eight hundred billion for the military. That's one point three trillion dollars per year for what? To, to to like seriously? That's fucking crazy, dude. But the military, you're gonna argue for. I agree. 
a half a billion dollars to incarcerate people. That's a crazy. Half a trillion, excuse me, half a trillion. Yeah, half a trillion dollar. Hey, hey, listen, I have an idea. Instead of us running a trillion dollar deficit, why don't we take that half a trillion and spend it on making sure people aren't poor, making sure kids come up the right way, counseling, drug, you know, rehabilitation. You can manage the problem or you can fix the problem. Yep. Managing the problem for a long time. The yeah. problem they created. It, yeah. The problem they created, they're managing. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. So how'd you get out? I finally went I went to court like too many times. It took me six months of fighting, and they finally forced him to release me. They were forced to release me. They did not want to release me. And I this thing, I'm more upset about a lot of stuff, but not the last six months. Is as mean as they sound, I earned that. That was based on my behavior for many years. Mm -hmm. They just pick my name out of a hat. I don't you think they do this to everybody. No, my defending Department of Corrections. My name wasn't picked out of a hat. No. I stuck my name on the wall and it's like, yo, F you. So when it came back around, I'm a firm believer. You got to take it the way you gave it. Right. So it's unfair. It's unprofessional. But my name wasn't picked out of a hat. I put my name on that wall. Yeah, no, no. no. You, you, you do number three in the state. Yeah. You, you dude, you climbed the mountain. So I you got. My goal was simple. I started a prison parole office youth center. 90 minutes after I got out, I'm at a juvenile center talking to little black boys. I told them, you're going to jail not because you're black, not because you carry a gun. Somebody's disappointed you to let you down and you act out because you don't know how to control your emotions. I'm going to teach you how to control your emotions. And I started teaching young black boys how to control their emotions. Then they asked me to come work with the girls. I started teaching the girls how to control their emotions. They asked me to go to a white school, like where you went. I'm like, white kids got it good. They don't have no problems. White kids do drugs. They smoke pot. They drink. They have sex. They don't pass all their classes. They got bullies. So I started working with white kids. Then I started working with the people who work with the kids. And I started working with the companies. And I started working with countries. And I just kept going. I was like, yo, if you call me, I'll show up. So, yeah, let's talk about that. So is that are we talking about the Academy of Hope? Is that what that is? Oh, yeah. So before we go there, though, because you're a fellow from Harvard now, I want to hear about that. Well, I came home and I started working. I became the number one outreach worker in the city and then the region and the state and then around the country. And I started doing all this wonderful stuff, worked in Honduras, Guatemala, Costa Rica, um, Saudi Arabia, Australia, West Africa, um, Sweden. I'm just working. I'm doing my thing. And then Ferguson happened. Right. Ferguson happens, and the whole world is like, oh, my God, it's on shutdown. And nobody could actually penetrate the Ferguson scenario. So when I got called to go to Ferguson, it was some EOers, actually, from St. Louis who asked me to come in. I was going to Ferguson to fix that. And then Harvard partnered up with me. I knew a lot of people at the school. I've given lectures there. And Harvard wanted to partner up with me to be part of the solution. That's why I got my fellowship. Then I went into I went into I went into Ferguson. I did my work, and then when I came out of it, okay, job well done. Clap your hands. But then I was missing something, so I went back to Ferguson, and I ended up talking to Michael Brown Senior, the father, because I spent all that time in Ferguson, never talked to the family. Mm -hmm. I went back and talked to the family, and I helped Michael Brown Senior. I became his mentor. Wow. So I literally talked to him probably. I talked to him yesterday. I talked to him like a couple times a week. 
Because at the end of the day, regardless what you think or what side you're on, his son is dead. Yeah. So take out the politics, take out the criminal justice, father with a dead son. That hurts. So yeah. I speak to him about hurt. I don't speak to him about politics and justice. I speak to him about pain and, and hurt. And I've been mentoring him around pain and hurt for like the last five years. Oh, man. So, man, what a fucking crazy story. <laughs> I knew this was going to be a crazy story, but I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Andre. I tend to like to come into these conversations cold so I can learn every. So this is like, like, I didn't know any of your story. I knew a little bit. I read your, I knew a bit. I knew that you had served time in prison and I knew that you had done some amazing things out of prison, but I didn't know any of that. that that's the extent. I run a prison now. Really? Uh, two years ago, they had a riot in South Carolina. And. Seven people got murdered at one time. And then they locked the entire prison system down because the gang leaders were killing each other. And for five months, the entire prison system was locked down and they didn't know what to do. So somebody said, hey, there's this guy. He might want to get him. So they called me and asked me to come to South Carolina. And you have a lot of people who will say, hey, I was number three. I was number two. I was number whatever. They said to me, we need you to go in this prison system. But 19,000 people who've been locked down for five and a half months for 24 hours a day and convince them not to stab each other when we open these doors back up. Wow. And that's where you separate the people who were and the people who claim to be. I walked into the prison where they had the murders, stood on the ground where they had blood, opened up 290 doors. They came out for the first time in five months. And I spoke to them. And I went to 10 prisons in six days and spoke to 8,000 prisoners. It wasn't one fight. They all respected what I had to say. They heard what I had to say. And they told the, the people in the prison, we want to work with him. That's the guy we'll work with. So they asked me to come back and do something. So I said, do this. Give me one unit. Go around your prison system. Get all your most problematic, your most violent, your most out of control. And bring them here. And I'll work with them. So we opened up the Academy of Hope two years ago. And in two years, we went from seven dead bodies on the floor to one fist fight. Wow. But it's the first time where you've allowed, they've allowed former gang leaders to actually run a unit. It's always some criminal justice professional or retired cop who wants to come in. And it's not that they don't know. They don't have relationship with the people they're trying to help. No, no. It's a subordinate relationship at best. And they don't. there's no empathy. There's no street credit. Like They don't know. So my question to you would be this. If we went to so whatever country and you got snatched up by uh, an extremist group and they, they, they snatched you, they kidnapped you, and they threw you in the basement, how many years would they have to hold you before you trusted them? Uh, I don't know. No, listen, I, I, how many years would they have to hold you before you trusted them? Keyword, trust them. Probably I would never trust them. And that's what you got in the American prison system. You've gone into the community, you've snatched people up, you've taken them to court, United States of America, state of Tennessee, state of Florida versus Darius, you throw you in a prison cell with a bunch of other people that is saying, trust us. It'll never happen. Never. No way. That's why our system is not getting better, because not because the people who are running it are bad people. No. People who are running it and the people who are in it don't have relationships. So, so Academy Hope is all about building relationships 
tell us a little more about that. So, so you guys are going into the prisons and basically we get all the leaders together and we teach them and we show them how to be the best versions of themselves and how they can, they control what happens in the prisons, not the guards, not the media, not the politicians. Gang leaders control prisons, period. I don't care because I know from solitary, I ran mine. They're running them. They're in general pop. And it was probably three months ago. And one of the units, not ours, lieutenant got into a beef with a guy. Guy picks the lieutenant up, slams him to the ground, and starts stabbing him, trying to kill him. And the lieutenant zones out. He's done. He's just waiting to die. And one of our graduates was on the unit. He ran over, and he saved the lieutenant's life, pulled the guy off him. Wow. And he stood and got stabbed five or six times to save the lieutenant. And when they said, well, why did you do that? He said it was the right thing to do. Wow. And that's what we teach, the right thing to do. Three years ago, he'd have stood by minding his business, and you'd have had a dead lieutenant on the floor. Yeah. But the, I had a CO at the county jail told me this one time. He said the worst can be the best if you just give him a chance. Yeah. And we gave that man a chance, and when the time came, he showed that he could be the best. There's nothing better than saving a life. I love it, man. So there's wow. some people who want to see change. There's some people who don't. So how can the community that listens to this help you, uh, you know, make this cause a bigger cause? I mean, a few things. One, we want to take Academy Hope to more prisons. So if you know a governor of a state, they can get us into the state for the system. If you know a sheriff that runs a county jail, they can get us into the jail system. If you know the president of the United States, then he can get a whole bunch of shit done. Hey, uh, Sergio Fernandez de Cordova, you just heard, uh, he knows Biden. So we, we, I need to connect you with him. Let's make it happen. And I'll connect, and I'm going to connect you with Kunal Sood, who's at the United Nations. So uh, you guys. If we want to fix the dilemma of Black Lives Matter, which is the social unrest in America, one, you have, you can't overlook prison. In the 70s and the 60s and the 50s, it was political prisons where you had no rep- you had no protection because it was all white police force, all white juries, all white DAs. Every time you go to you go to YouTube and type in exonerated black man, and a fucking thing will just go crazy because there's been hundreds of people released for crimes they never committed. But in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, with all white juries, all white police forces, all white judges. Nobody was like, you can just go ahead. Don't we, I got this. We need this one. And there was a lot of that going on. Wow. You know what I'm saying? In the, in the 40s and the 30s, they just hung you. But when they got past it, they just couldn't hang you no more. They just had to wink, blink, send them to jail. So there's a lot of people. This type of exonerated black men. And they're coming out. It, it'll just, YouTube will go crazy. So where can, where can people find you? Because I'm going to make some connections for you. But where can people find you? Uh, let's get Let's kind of drop this. Is you can go to my website, andrenorman.com, and send me an email. Okay. So you guys heard that, andrenorman.com. Hit up Andre. You go by, you go by Andre or Dre? Both. I like Dre. I'm going to call you Dre. You can send an email. The email is CEO at andrenorman.com. You guys heard that, CEO at andrenorman.com. You guys could check out Academy of Hope, andrenorman.com. Man. I'll give you a video and you can attach it. To this thing, they can see the, they can see the work that we do in real time. Yeah, we're gonna put that in the show notes. So you guys uh, check out the show notes. 
I'll get that link from Andre and his team. We'll put that on social as well. But go check out AndreNorman.com, Academy of Hope. Let's get him connected in all the right places so we can make these changes because gosh knows this country, you know, we need, we need to see these changes happen, man. And I love that you're doing it. We're in a place now where white folks and black folks are in a space and want to have a conversation. So I've been working with a lot of white companies, a lot of white families, a lot of folks just, Andre, how do we, I had one today. The guy was like, well, how do we help? What does that look like? What is enough? What's not enough? How come what I'm doing is not enough? And I explained to him, if you've ever driven off of a high road ramp and there's a guy out there begging for change, how much is enough for you to give him? How much could you give him for him to say that that's enough? There's no limit. You can give him all the money in your wallet and he'll still think, I could use more. Right. You give him your money, your wife's money, your kids' money, and he can still, he won't be, he says, I can use more. The problem is there's no relationship. Right. With no relationship, there's no such thing as enough. Yeah. So it's about respect, trust, building a relationship. It's about the relationship that that's when you, if you have no relationship, there'll never be enough. Right. It has to be a heartfelt thing, not just a check a box thing. Yeah. It's enough when it comes from the heart. When you're doing it to check a box, there'll never be enough. Yeah. I love it, man. Oh, man. We're, we're at the end of the time here. This is, this is, that, that flew by. Um, we could have gone, we could probably go another hour. Andre, my brother, thank you so Dre. You call me D, I call you Dre. Hey, it's in the bill. I'll tell you what, if your people hit you up and it's like, yo, we need part two, we'll do part two. I love it, man. I love it. I, dude, this has made my day. I appreciate you, my, my brother. This has been awesome. Like so much knowledge to be dropped here. I can't wait to make introductions to the people I know who are doing some cool things that, that can, can hopefully, you know, take what you're doing and really help spread it. Um, guys, if you, if, if you can, if you can, again, hook up at AndreNorman.com or email Andre at CEO at AndreNorman.com. This is the, this type of conversation needs to happen more in this country. And, and I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate you, man. And listen, the greatness machine is here. Boom. Love it. All right, guys. We're on. Are they getting on the machine too? They got to do it, man. You got deuce deuce here. Guys, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you, Andre. We're out of here. Peace, everybody. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Guys, The Greatness Machine is all about two things. People who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world, and we feature these messages and speakers so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life and your own business. If you love what you heard, Subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from and leave us a review. We love getting reviews for the show. If the episode made you think of someone who is leveling up in their business and life, print screen it, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to learn from one another. You can also go to our website, www.thegreatnessmachine.com. That's www.thegreatnessmachine.com. And on there, you'll see special tools to help you scale your business faster show notes for the episode to help you integrate the lessons. And you will also get links that came out during the show. So on there, look, you can also grab a copy of my book, The Core Value Equation, which is a resource for helping CEOs and business leaders establish core values from their teams that don't suck. And mind you, a lot of them suck. Get access to this and more at www.thegreatnessmachine.com. With that said, you guys, look, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We out of here. See you guys next time.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.